Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Grab those binoculars. It's bird watching season. Winter weather is finally behind us, and now thousands of birds are migrating north. Coming up, we'll talk about how you can help track birds through a joint project by Yukon and the State Department of Energy Environmental Protection. We'll also check in later on the state of raptors in our region, including ospreys. But first, what birds are you noticing right now near your house or apartment, your workplace? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Send us your pictures of the birds you're seeing. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm uh, happy to welcome back to our studios Dr. Margaret Rubega, Connecticut State Ornithologist and Professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UConn. Welcome back to the show, Margaret. Hi, Lucy. Thanks. Uh, I was just looking uh, um, at what's in my yard over the last few days. It's been beautiful weather, and I've seen dozens of American goldfinches. I've seen um, a red-winged blackbird. And the other day, an eastern bluebird swooped in. I was so happy to, to see those birds. Now, are these birds all migrating back, or were they less visible in the winter? They were. The answer is yes. <laughs> So in the case of the red-winged blackbirds, those did migrate away, and the bird that showed up in your yard is a recent arrival. Um, In the case of the bluebirds, the bluebirds actually have been here for the most part all winter long, but bluebirds um, have have an annual um, diet plan. In the spring and during the summertime, they're really focusing on protein-rich foods like insects, so they're finding those. They tend to find those in lawns and in open spaces. Um, but in the winter time, when those foods are less available, bluebirds actually shift entirely to fruit. And their, their physiology changes completely. Their gut changes to accommodate the diet change. But they also have to move to places where they can find those things. And typically, unless you're the sort of person who's really planted the heck out of your yard in fruit-bearing bushes, stuff that has berries that hang on through the winter, you won't tend to see them because they're sort of off in the woods finding those berries. And the goldfinches? The goldfinches are actually also around um, all through the winter, and they might actually even be at your feeders, but you won't tend to notice them so much because they lose that super fancy bright yellow coat of feathers. They molt through an entirely different set of feathers that makes them less fancy looking. Um, They just get dressed up to attract a mate. And so in the winter time, there's no real um, function for those yellow feathers, and they make them a lot more conspicuous to predators. So they shed them and grow new ones that make them look uh, much duller and, and less conspicuous at your feeder. They're kind of stripy and brown looking in the wintertime. Uh, we're talking with you today because uh, we've heard it's now peak bird watching season or the start of bird watching season um, as we look at spring migration. So the point behind migration is there, the birds are coming back to, uh, to find places to nest, but also the food supply is going to grow more abundant up here? Yeah, exactly. First thing, I have to correct something. 
It's peak bird watching season all year round. <laughs> of course, if, as a state if ornithologist. You're, if you're a right-thinking kind of person, Lucy, it's, it's peak bird watching all year round. There are birds here all the time. But it is, um, we are just coming up to the absolute peak of, of migration. And so the birds who have spent the winter in Central America, South America, uh, where it's warmer and, and uh, we don't go through quite the, you know, the, the climate extremes are not so great there, um, are all moving north right now because as it gets warmer and warmer and warmer, the insects they depend on for a protein-based food, especially for their chicks, there's about to be a huge pulse of of hatch of those insects. And we know this, right? We've all been going around complaining about the snow and soon we'll be complaining about the mosquitoes. Mm. Oh, we just had an, uh, an ice and sleet storm certain parts of the state a couple weeks ago. So when there's that uh, on the ground, uh, so it has migration, spring migration, has that resulted? Has it shifted a little bit because of the weather up here? Well, it's interesting. Um, Migration in birds is actually controlled. They decide when to move north on the basis of something that has nothing to do with the weather, which is light levels and day length. They actually have um, light receptors in this gland in their head called the hypothalamus. And the light, this is really interesting, gets to the hypothalamus right through their skull. That's how, how thin bird skulls are. So Day length sets this internal clock in birds that controls their behavior. And just like in the summertime, you're way more active into the evening, right, because it stays light. Um, At the right time of year, they start to get restless because of those light levels, and then they start to move north. At that point, weather starts to have an effect on how rapidly they move on exactly what day they they make the next jump. Um, And the sleet storm that you're talking about, for instance, pushed a whole lot of birds that were in the process of moving north down to the ground. You know, you know how when you're in a plane and you fly into a weather system and it gets all bumpy and horrible? Well, it's just like that for them, except they have to flap to go through it. <laughs> so it's, it's cheaper and easier for them energetically to just go to the ground and wait it out. Uh, with us today in studio is Dr. Margaret Rubega, Connecticut State Ornithologist, as we look at uh, bird watching uh, this season in the spring, as well as uh, the migrating birds that are coming back. We want to hear from you, too, if you have questions about these uh, feathered friends that are coming back to your yard that you're noticing. Uh, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, now, I, I mentioned you are the state ornithologist, and so what does that mean exactly for the state of Connecticut, and is this a busy time for you? (laughs) Well, what does it mean? Uh, The state ornithologist uh, was established, believe it or not, by state statute in 1913. The Connecticut state legislators at that point looked around and said, wait, we're paying some guy out at the state teaching college to to do what? To teach people about birds? So they, they wrote the statute that said that the person who teaches the ornithology class will serve without additional compensation, that part's important, Um, as the state ornithologist and advise the state on matters of importance to birds. In practical terms, what that means right now is that I'm a source for pretty much anybody in the state who who wants or needs information about birds. And yes, at this time of the year, it does tend to get a little busy on the phone. People will begin to call me up and say, there's a woodpecker hammering on my house, and I'm sure he's digging big holes. How do I make him stop? And what do you tell him? 
he's probably not making big holes in your house, and have you checked your siding for bugs? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Woodpeckers will sometimes actually dig insects out of your house, but in general, when they're making a lot of noise, that's not what they're doing. What they're actually doing is using your house as a great big, um, in effect, microphone while they advertise for a mate. They're hammering on it instead of singing the way some birds would. Woodpeckers hammer on resonant structures. So anything that echoes and makes a big loud noise is great for them. So the bird who's hammering on your house is probably, in effect, just hanging around up there going, hey, haven't seen you around here before. Uh, Can I buy you a bug? You mentioned, so uh, breeding season, the woodpecker uh, doing this to certain people's homes. But when we look at the behavior of other birds, uh, things that you notice, so a lot more uh, singing songs, uh, more territorial uh, spats between robins, or what should people be looking out for? Well, the singing songs especially, um, if uh, at this time of year it starts to get nice, maybe you're the sort of person who opens your window, you'll start noticing in the wee hours four o'clock, you know, in the morning, birds start singing. And especially when the mockingbirds get on territory, I start to get calls about that. Mm -hmm. There's this bird that starts singing and it's really loud (laughs) and it keeps changing. I can't sleep through it and I have to work. What can I do? And the answer is get noise canceling. You can't do anything, but they'll stop in a few weeks. So lots of birds are singing, um, sitting up on the tops of... uh, Bushes, you know, sitting on open branches at the tops of trees, singing and singing and singing. They're both establishing territories by doing that. They're kind of building, in effect, an an auditory fence. They're going around the edges of their territories and singing to say to other males, this is my patch, you stay out of it. This is my patch, you stay out of it. At the same time, they're also doing that, hey, baby, hey, baby, hey, baby thing, trying to attract a mate. Um, you will see some spats, birds chasing each other around, and that's that's birds fighting over exactly where the boundary of a territory is. Um, and increasingly, you're starting to see birds flying around um, with nesting material, holding patches of grass, you know, little pieces of, of uh, plant material, leaves, whatever. That part gets pretty exciting because then you know they're they're you know close to having babies. Uh, because you're the state ornithologist, Margaret, we're getting a lot of uh, questions uh, on our social media. Uh, someone on Twitter wants to know, they're seeing lots of blue jays in their yard, but how can you tell the male and female apart? The answer to that is you cannot, except at one very critical moment. Blue jays are, are what are called um, monomorphic, which just means that they look exactly the same. Their plumage patterns don't change at all. If you happen to be in a place where you can watch them doing that critical activity that's required to make babies, if you can catch them copulating, the bird on the top is the male. That's all I got for you. (laughs) Thanks for that tip. Let's go to a phone call here on where we live at 860-275-7266. Kelly from Monroe, what's your question? Hi, I'm laughing about the Blue Jay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a couple of questions, just some general info. As far as putting out hummingbird feeders, I'm in Monroe, and we're heavily wooded. 
Um, I do get a couple of hummingbirds. When's the best time to put those out? And there's there. I have some pileateds around. Will Ooh, they lucky ever come you. to a feeder? <laughs> lucky, lucky you. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, describe the pileated woodpecker for people who may not know what that oh, is. Oh, a pileated woodpecker is a spectacular. It's the biggest North American woodpecker. They don't get bigger than a pileated woodpecker. It is, um, if you look at um, your forearm, um, from the sort of the base of your um, hand to almost your elbow, that's about how long a pileated woodpecker is from end to end. So it's a, it's a, for a woodpecker, it's a very large bird, and it's got a spectacular red crest, um, white markings on its face and down along its neck and uh, uh, black upper wings in the top of the body. It's, it's a really flashy-looking bird. Um, and the answer about uh, pileated woodpeckers coming to feeders is that a pileated woodpecker has a, a very particular um, feeding style. They they find trees that are sappy like a pine tree, and they dig big holes in them. They they um, uh, when I say dig, I mean they strike them with their beak, and um, big chips of wood will fly. They have a very very heavy and strong head and beak. They make a sort of a big squarish hole, and then when it weeps sap and insects come in to feed on that, they get stuck in it, and the pileated just comes back and pulls the bugs out of the sap. And when the tree seals up the holes, the pileated will reopen them again so that it'll weep more pitch. So I am not I've never had a pileated woodpecker at any of my feeders. Your only chance for a pileated woodpecker would be to put out suet blocks. Um, it, it you can go to any bird feed store and get a little a little metal cage that you put the block inside of, and then the woodpecker will dig it out through there. But I have to say, I, I, I it'd be interesting to hear from any birders in the state who have gotten pileateds to come in um, to food at a feeder. Hmm. You asked also about hummingbird feeders, and the answer is if you're prepared to keep cleaning them, throw them up. Um, the earliest instances of the sort of um, Hummingbirds that have kind of been invading the state, a rufous hummingbird, have have already turned up in the southern end of the state. It'll be a little while before most hummingbirds are back, largely because there aren't so many flowers yet. Um, but if you put up feeders, you'll be able to tell whether they're back because they'll come. Uh, one more question before we head to break uh, from Craig on Facebook, who says, I can't seem to keep the red squirrels off my Oriole feeder. They have a sweet tooth. That's interesting. I've never actually seen a Baltimore Oriole, but some people actually put out uh, oranges. They, they they will put them on a post. What's the best way to see those birds? Um, well, those those orange feeders that you're talking about work actually incredibly well. Again, you can go to almost any um, store that sort of specializes in bird food. Um, the big box stores don't tend to have these. Uh, you need to go someplace like the Fat Robin in Hamden or uh, the Audubon Shop in Madison. They make these like little cast iron things. They have two prongs on them. You just cut an orange in half and impale them, and the birds will come in and hang on it and dig food out of it. And how long do they stick, stick around this area? A Baltimore Oriole? Um, they'll, they'll come in... Um, they're not uh, – they'll be here through the summer. So you you get a good three months out of Baltimore Orioles. It's a little little earlier for Orioles right now, but it, it uh, they'll be back soon. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with us again, Connecticut's ornithologist, Dr. Margaret Rubega, also professor of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UConn. We're talking about birds because it's finally spring, and as you've probably noticed around your home, many birds are returning to New England. We're going to keep taking your calls after the break, and then coming up, we're going to hear from the head of Connecticut's Audubon Society to talk about a very important citizen science project. We don't want to miss the details on that. You can also join the conversation to 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's for the birds. We're focusing on them because as we're hearing from our state ornithologist, bird watching season is getting busier, although it is year round, as uh, she mentioned uh, earlier in the show. Thousands of birds are migrating north. What birds have you noticed where you live? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, again, Dr. Margaret Rubega is with us, uh, the state ornithologist. And joining us now also is Patrick Cummins, Executive Director of the Connecticut Audubon Society. Patrick, welcome to where we live. Thank you, Lucy. So we were just talking about uh, the migration season. Uh, what birds are you noticing uh, where you live, Patrick? Well, I had a, a blue-gray gnatcatcher calling in the yard yesterday, and uh, there it was a, the first of the year for me. And I had a big flock of chipping sparrows. Uh, they're a familiar bird in our yards in the nesting season, but they tend to winter just to our south, kind of uncommon in the, uh, in, in, in the uh, wintertime. And, and I had a big flock of about 25 of them at our Smith-Richardson Preserve in uh, Westport. Now, depending on what part of the state you live, you might be seeing different birds from the shore versus northern Connecticut. Where are some good places for people to go to bird watch, Patrick? Well, at the Connecticut Audubon Society, we have more than 3,000 acres that we protect and manage specifically for birds and other wildlife in the state, including some amazing places like Milford Point. We have our Milford Point Coastal Center, which is one of my favorite favorite places to go birding. We have um, the Birdcraft uh, Sanctuary, which is in Fairfield, right in downtown Fairfield. And it's sort of this oasis of habitat in a very highly developed landscape. And when the, the migration weather is right, you can just have tons of birds just concentrated into this little eight-acre sanctuary. It's a great place to go to go birding. Uh, we have up in um, northeast Connecticut in Pomfret, we have our Bafflin Sanctuary, which is, has some unusual habitat for Connecticut. It has uh, a lot of what we call early successional habitat. That's grassland and shrubland uh, habitat. But there's there's other great places to go birding that, that aren't Connecticut Audubon Society properties, and we try to help out uh, with those places as well. There's Stratford Point in Stratford, right at the mouth of the Housatonic River, which is uh, run by the uh, Audubon Connecticut. Um, up in South Windsor, there is the uh, Station 43, which is uh, right off of Vibbert Road in South Windsor, and that's a that's a sort of a wetland area, and that's owned by the Hartford Audubon Society. So there's you know, the amazing thing about Connecticut is we have a lot of people that live here, but we also have a lot of great bird habitat and a lot of opportunities to see birds. We're getting a bunch of calls. Before we uh, hear from some of our listeners with their questions, I wanted to ask uh, both, uh, I'll start with Margaret. Um, bird watching is a hobby uh, that many people enjoy in our state, but it also serves a purpose for this project called the Connecticut Bird Atlas. Tell us about that, Margaret. Yeah, the Bird Atlas is a, a an attempt it's a project that is aimed at trying to figure out how many birds there are, where they are, 
whether they breed here, whether they winter here, it's, it's the first truly comprehensive attempt to use citizen science, to use volunteers as well as professionals to figure out exactly where the birds are in the state. And it sort of sounds like that should be easy to do. You go out and you count them, right? Um, if you go, say, to a music festival or something, you can count the people as they go in and out the gates. The problem is, is that birds can fly. And also in a lot of places, they're, they're in effect, you know, behind the, uh, behind the refreshment stand and behind the bleachers. And you can't actually see them all the time. And so when you send people out to count, it's easy for them to go to certain kinds of places, like some of the places that Patrick talked about, and, and count the birds that you can see there because they're all gathered in this good patch of habitat. What we know less about is in the places that aren't so easy to get to, that maybe don't occur to people to go to, how many birds are there? Are they breeding here? Do they stay year-round? Right, we're taking an inventory. And the project's being run by another professor at UConn, uh, Dr. Chris Elphick, and the Connecticut State Department of Environmental Protection, with substantial support from a whole bunch of other organizations in the state, the Connecticut Ornithological Society, the Great Hollow Ecological Research uh, Program, Connecticut Audubon, yay, Patrick, um, and Audubon, Connecticut. We have more than one Audubon in the state. It, it's a It's a... A big group effort to find out where all the birds are. So it's a, this is a volunteer effort. How many volunteers do you have on board, Patrick? And why is Connecticut Audubon Society supporting this initiative? Well, um, as to how many volunteers, I'm not sure yet. Uh, we, we, we're hoping to have hundreds of volunteers engaged. Yeah. Uh, and we're still in the process of, of recruiting those volunteers. You can uh, find out more information at our website, which is ctaudubon.org, or you can Google Connecticut Bird Atlas, go directly to that site. But we are absolutely thrilled to be partnering in this project because I think this is the most important bird research project of my career. And I've been working for more than 25 years in bird conservation. And it's it's just going to be allow our decision-making to be so much more efficient as to we'll know exactly what places are most important for which species. So if we want to conserve wood thrush, we'll be able to look at a map, see exactly where the wood thrush are going to be, see what is protected, see what isn't protected, and we can be proactive and say, well, this parcel right here will be really critical to the long-term survival of this species that's in so much trouble. So I, I'm just absolutely thrilled. And it's going to be a lot of fun, too. Uh, the, the last time around, it really sort of solidified the birding community. And everybody talked about, oh, I, I had this block and I found this species. And we weren't expecting to find black-throated green warbler so far south, south nesting in Connecticut. So it, it's going to be a lot of fun and incredibly important and interesting. Uh, birders themselves will, will know a lot better about where we can find uh, which species they're looking for in the nesting season. I can actually say that there's 677 people already signed up. Thank you. Well, that's good news. And uh, there's a lot of uh, people who appreciate birds in our state uh, and a lot of calls I want to get to here on where we live uh, as we talk about uh, spring and uh, migration. Uh, Richard from Southbury is on the line. Richard, go ahead with your question. Hi. Uh, the uh, state ornithologist wanted to hear from people who had been seeing pileated woodpeckers. Uh, we live over in uh, Heritage Village, which uh, has some kind of a state bird sanctuary designation or whatever. But anyway, they did a good job at maintaining the uh, 
the, the foliage, the landscape, whatever, we, our backyard backs up onto a very large tract of land. And in the wintertime, I had this, you know, kind of candelabra-like uh, pole hanging out. And on one side, the bird feeder is filled with sunflower seeds. And on the other side, I had a double cage with suet in it. And not often, uh, but maybe once a week or so, we'd see one or I think two pileated woodpeckers coming and lots of regular woodpeckers during the week. Uh, But then, you know, we'd have to take down the uh, bird suet uh, around the time that the uh, bears emerge from hibernation because they'll come along and just you know, one little yeah. swipe, take down the whole uh, bird stand, and uh, <laughs> and they would go after the uh, uh, the suet and leave the uh, seeds along. So, uh, and the pileated and other woodpeckers would go into the uh, you know go on to the bird feeder for the uh, sunflower seeds occasionally, mm. uh, and and after a while they'd figure out it's not suet, then they'd take off. So <laughs> after, after the winter, we wouldn't see them, but but we do see them occasionally over here. Well, thank you, Richard, for your for your call. I just wanted to bring up, he mentioned uh, when the bears come out from hibernation, and that's an important point because depending on where you live in the state, they do recommend that you take your feeders down around this time. So then where do you go? What's your recommendation for people who really enjoy looking at birds and wanting to see them, but they don't? They shouldn't have their, their feeders out? There are other ways to attract birds to your yard than, than feeders. Uh, plantings, planting native sh- trees and shrubs are a great way to be able to draw birds to your yard and to also help the birds. And actually, that can be more helpful to the birds than, than feeders, particularly in the nesting season. I think, uh, I think of feeding the birds more as for our enjoyment than for helping the birds. If we didn't feed at all, maybe some species wouldn't be doing as well as they are. But uh, really... The primary purpose of the bird feeders is, is for us to be able to experience the birds and in, in, a, in a beneficial way and really get us more interested in birds and get us caring more about the birds. So, uh, yeah, you do need to take – if you live in an area where there are bears, uh, it, it is wise to take your feeders down uh, once the bears start getting active. Be bear aware. Patrick Cummins is executive director of the Connecticut Audubon Society. Uh, we just spoke briefly about the uh, project for the Connecticut Bird Atlas. Uh, why, it, for those of us who may not uh, follow birds as closely or people don't have time uh, uh, to volunteer at this project, why is it so important, though, to track the bird population? Well, birds are a great indicator of our environment. Uh, we ourselves require clean air, clean water. Uh, we require healthy levels of pollinators to be able to, um, to, to have the food that we eat. Uh, we need clean soil for, uh, you know, good soils for growing our food. And birds are a great indicator for the overall health of the ecosystem. So if we can understand where the birds are and keep healthy diversity and population levels of birds, that's a great indicator that our environment that we ourselves depend on is doing well. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, Patrick Cummins is with us from Connecticut Audubon Society. Also, Margaret Rubega, Connecticut State Ornithologist. As we talk about uh, birds and bird watching this time of year in the spring, we're going to continue our conversation with them after the break. We're going to hear more about some birds that are more rare to see. Also, how are raptors faring in Connecticut? That's all coming up. And we'll continue to take your questions at 860-275-7266. First, it's the last day of WNPR spring membership campaign. Please support where we live and all the other great programming here with a contribution. And here are two of my colleagues to tell you how. 
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, an agency under scrutiny. On the next Where We Live, State Department of Correction Commissioner Scott Semple will join us to talk about recent news reports involving his department, including questions about security, a prison birth, also inmate population trends. And then we want to hear from you, too, as well. Do you have a question or comment for the DOC commissioner on Monday? Join us. Today, we've been talking about birds during spring migration. What birds are you seeing around your home? You can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. In studio with me, state ornith- ornithologist Dr. Robert, I'm sorry, Dr. Margaret Rubega, also professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UConn, and Patrick Cummins, executive director of the Connecticut Audubon Society. Uh, Patrick, we were talking about the importance of bird conservation. Uh, we know there are certain types of birds uh, that are endangered. Can you walk us through ones that you're concerned about through the Connecticut Audubon Society, and which ones have we seen a resurgence? Sure. Uh, some of the species that we're most concerned about, probably the one that we're most concerned about is, uh, is a small bird called the salt marsh sparrow. And this is a species that actually a fairly high percentage of the world population lives right here in Connecticut. And, you know, if you were just looking at Connecticut, you'd think, oh, this is a fairly common bird. But it's a species that's declined probably by about 80% just in the last couple of decades. And uh, the reason is it nests right on the ground in salt marshes and sort of races between the spring tides in order to raise its young. That species is a globally endangered species and is probably the highest risk of extinction of any bird species found in our area that I can think of. And that's all out extinction. Our our grandkids may not ever see this species. Uh, Other species that we have a lot of concern about are piping plover, even though they're doing much better. They still have a tenuous existence and they need a lot of uh, stewardship, if you will. And that's a species that, uh, that Connecticut Audubon Society spends a lot of time trying to conserve. Wood thrush is another one that's fairly common, but declining at a precipitous rate. It's declined by about 80% in the last 50 years. Um, and uh, it's a species that nests in our area and winters in Central America. So it has problems in migration, nesting, and in its wintering grounds. But really, the, when you look at the population dynamics of it, where it is declining is the areas that it has ha- have had the biggest impacts to the nesting grounds. So our forests here in Connecticut are very important to the long-term survival of that species. But there have been some tremendous success stories. Uh, Piping plover, for example, is coming back, although it still requires a lot of management, a lot of effort to be put into its conservation. Last three years, we've had record productivity and record number of pairs of piping plovers along the shores of Connecticut, with a lot of effort from from Connecticut Audubon Society, uh, the Roger Torrey Peterson Institute of Natural History, and Audubon, Connecticut. also, there have been some great success stories with raptors. Uh, the peregrine falcon was was almost wiped out from North America because it was having problem reproduct, uh, reproductive problems. Its eggshells were too thin, and when it would sit on those eggs, they would break. And the reason was was because of a pesticide known as DDT, which is a fat-soluble pesticide. So it would accumulate up the food chain and eventually into these apex predators, the ones at the top of the food web, uh, like peregrine falcons, bald eagles, osprey, brown pelicans, uh, they were having all sorts of reproductive problems. But citizen scientists were quick to notice these, these problems, birders, amateur birders. Then the professional scientists, uh, including Roland Clement from, from Connecticut, found the problems and found that it this connection between the metabolites of DDT and the thinning eggshells. And then um, groups like Audubon and uh, and uh, the Connecticut Audubon Society banded together to get legislation. And really, the magic there was the grassroots. It was people 
reaching out to their elected officials saying, this is important to us and nothing gets done in a big way without people speaking up to the people who can make decisions. Uh, there are elected representatives. Don't be shy to let your feelings be known to them. This is where we live. Again, uh, we're talking about birds today, and in studio with us is Dr. Margaret Rubega, Connecticut State Ornithologist. When we're hearing about efforts uh, to conserve uh, bird populations, uh, when we look at uh, regulations within the federal government, uh, any that are helping with conservation or harming? Oh, yeah, sure. Probably the most fundamentally important um, law in North America with respect to birds, and especially migratory birds is the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Um, it was passed in 1918. It was actually the first international um, treaty uh, to protect wildlife. Um, Woodrow Wilson uh, made that made that treaty with uh, King George. I think it was the fifth. I don't want to get them wrong. Um, and that, that treaty um, has been the basis of the protection f- for birds in North America um, for the last hundred years, uh, you you cannot simply go out and harm or take um, or influence the the future of any n- native North American bird without a penalty because of that law. And interestingly, just recently, the Department of the Interior under the Trump administration has issued this legal ruling. Um, it's it's an opinion about how the Department of the Interior will apply that law that says that if you are a commercial interest and you do not um, intend specifically, if you're not purposefully harming birds, if you harm birds in the course of your, your ongoing activities, you're not subject to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And, and you know, we can, we can see the effect of that pretty clearly if um, – it, it's in effect a way of saying if you're running a big chemical c- company and um, you, you spill a tremendous amount of toxic chemicals in the environment, as long as you didn't mean to kill all those people in the neighborhood, as long as you weren't trying to kill all those people in the neighborhood, you're not going to be penalized for it. Um, so so that's very concerning for folks who are interested in conservation, and I think there's going to be a, a fair bit of legal wrangling over that particular opinion. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Ed May is calling from Mystic. Ed May, go ahead with your question. Yes, hi. When I uh, moved to my home in Mystic about 20 years ago, we had many, many uh, northern flickers, and I put out feeders, and it came every day. Um, sometimes three of them at once. And in the past, I'd say seven years, they've completely disappeared from at least my backyard. And when I go out hiking, I never see them anymore. I'm just wondering if something's happened to that population. Thank you. Patrick. Yeah, northern flickers have been declining at one of the highest rates of any of our common bird species. They aren't to the point of being endangered yet. Um, but they have declined, you know, probably in excess of 70% uh, in, in the last uh, half century or so. And uh, why? We don't necessarily know. Uh, part of it is is the decline of farmland, most likely. They, they are sort of an edge species. They like a row of trees with, with open ground around them. That's why they, they, in some ways they, they can adapt better to suburbia than, than many other species of birds. 
I have a hypothesis that's untested, but I think that um, uh, I think the the pervasive use of lawn care. Uh, pesticides is probably having an impact on them because everybody wants to get rid of the grubs in their yard. And uh, you see um, flickers a lot of times feeding on the ground, both on grubs or on ants. And uh, unfortunately, these pesticides do not discriminate. And uh, uh, I don't know if they're having a defect, uh, a direct impact on, on the flickers or if their prey base is depleted because the pesticides are killing the insects that they require, that they require to be healthy. So um, I have a feeling that has something to do with it. So my, my guess would be as a, a combination of habitat loss, more intensive use of our, our acreages here in, um, uh, throughout their range, and also the the increased use of things like chemlon, well, not to use a, of, of, of lawn care pesticides. Uh, Margaret, we have a question uh, from someone on Twitter who wants to know where is the best place to see bald eagles and wants to know, is that an eagle's nest on the electrical line towers at the Charter Oak Bridge? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, best place to see uh, uh, um, eagles would be along the Connecticut River or the Housatonic River, right. particularly in the colder months. Connecticut Audubon Society actually has cruises. Uh, you can find out more about uh, that on our website where you can go out in, in April and uh, see uh, osprey and bald eagles along the Connecticut River. But you can see them almost any month. And that's actually an osprey uh, nest uh, along alongside the, uh, uh, the highway there. Um, it's one of the more visible osprey nests in the state. Oh, Rob, Robin has been holding from Hamden. Robin, go ahead with your question. Hi, how are you? Um, we have a bird's nest sitting in um, a bush uh, right outside our window. It's about eight feet off the ground. And we noticed it at the end of the fall when the leaves fell off and it was abandoned. And it's still abandoned. And my question is, is it safe for me to take it out of the tree, out of the bush and bring it in? Or if I leave it there, is there a possibility that birds will come back to it or other birds will use it? Uh, well, with respect to it being safe to take it in, if there is nobody nesting in it now, if you're not seeing activity in it, you're not going to harm any bird by taking it down. Depending on whose nest it actually is, it might or might not be reusable. There are a wide variety of birds who reuse nests, and then there are some um, that simply build anew from scratch every single year. Um, it's worth knowing that that same Migratory Bird Treaty Act that I was talking about earlier actually prohibits all of us from having bird parts, bird materials, whole birds, which is to say that you actually technically may not have bird nests without a scientific collecting permit. Uh, Lori is calling from Hartford. Lori, go ahead with your question. Good morning. I'm so glad to ask this question. I've been wondering for years. I live here in an apartment building in Hartford, and next to the building there's a wonderful uh, red oak. And every night in the summer, there's it sounds like only one bird, but maybe there's more, um, a continuous beautiful sound that it makes. And, um, in fact, I have a neighbor who says he closes his window because it drives him crazy, but I love to listen to it. And I'm wondering what kind of bird this would be. Tell me what, what time of night are we talking about? Um, late at night, usually getting up during the night, you know, and um, like that. It's not 9 o'clock at night when we're watching TV, but it's later at night, much later. And does it sound like it's making lots of different kinds of noises? It's kind of No, a... it has a continuous sound, very melodious, but always the same, pretty much the same. 
Hmm. I think you might have stumped yeah. him. <laughs> well, yeah. Northern Mockingbird is, is the one that, that sings most often at night. Uh, and, you know, it, it, in a sense, it's always the same. Uh, it's always the same instrument that it's playing, you know, kind of sort of the same tone to it. But it'll it'll uh, repeat things four times in a row. You know, um, and uh, that's the one that most often sings all night long. Uh, if it's a sort of a continuous trill, it could be something like a um, an American toad that you're hearing. Uh, which has has a, a continuous, uh, you know, monotonous trill that is melodious as well, and it, and it sounds very bird-like. Mm. We just have a couple of minutes, and I wanted to not run out of time before we talk about uh, migration madness. Again, this is another uh, project uh, out of the Connecticut Audubon Society. Patrick, tell us about what you're trying to do there. Sure. Um, it's really to highlight uh, birds at the most interesting time to go out birding. As little Margaret said earlier, a- a- every week of the year is the peak of, of birding in Connecticut. So there's always something interesting to see. But the weekend after Mother's Day is traditionally the peak of variety and the birds are coming through and they're all singing easier to find and they're all in breeding plumage. So we wanted to highlight that. And we have uh, this weekend, uh, May 18th through the 20th, where we are have we have more than 30 events around the state, including movies, we have bird walks, we have talks, we have uh, family activities, like we have Birding Jeopardy at one point in Old Lyme. You can find uh, the entire schedule and more information up on our website, ctaudubon.org. But at the heart of it is what we call the, the Birdathon, where people are going to try and go out and see how many different kinds of birds they can find over the course of this three-day weekend. And like a walkathon or a bikeathon, we're asking people to have uh, their friends pledge, oh, I'll give you a dollar for every bird species you can find. And whether you can find 10 species of birds over the course of that weekend or 200 species of birds over the course of that weekend, either way, you can make a huge difference and uh, have a lot of fun. And the only one you're really competing against, although we do have some prizes, is yourself. So you might get 15 species this year, and then next year when we do it, you might get 25. And, and eventually, you're just going to keep on going up and up. And uh, and you can always uh, use that as a benchmark for how, how you did. So check it out on our website. It's going to be a lot of fun. And we'll make sure to share that information at um, on our Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live, also our website, wmpr.org slash Where We Live. There's also a really cool event that we ran out of time uh, to talk about, but the Chimney Swift Night at Willimantic Breweries. We're talking about birds and enjoying beer. We'll make sure we post that as well. But I want to thank uh, Dr. Margaret Rubega, Connecticut State Ornithologist and Professor of Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UConn. Thank you so much for coming thank in. Thank you, Lucy. Also, Patrick Cummins, Executive Director of the Connecticut Audubon Society. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you. I'm fun. Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. If you appreciate this kind of conversation, uh, not just policy, but talking about why we enjoy and appreciate living here in New England, please support us now. And thanks.